We have just started a series on First and Second Samuel, but this week I want to take a break from that series to address uh, some of the things that happened that have been on your mind and that happened on January 6th uh, at U.S. Capitol. And I hope the reason that I'm doing that uh, will become somewhat apparent as we go. But I think that one thing that I want to say is that one of the reasons why I'm doing it is that I fell under the conviction that I don't want to be um, complacent or a coward, things that I'm both uh, prone to. And also, um, also that, that uh, I, want to, I want to make sure that I'm faithful in preaching uh, God's word and addressing, um, addressing us where we need to hear it, especially things that are often And the second thing that I wanted to say before I begin, just by way of introduction, is that, um, that some of my sitting under the word and coming to this conviction uh, came because I listened to a sermon by a fellow PCA minister up in Sacramento named Lance Lewis. He's in our denomination. And I just want to say that he cemented things that were already rumbling around in my head. Uh, some, of their, uh, uh, some of what I'll say has some overlap with what he said. Um, I would just commend to you his sermon. It's much better than mine is going to be, so go listen to it. And I'm not sure, you know, uh, everything that I say, uh, any anything that I say I'm responsible for, but Lance said it better than me uh, or different than me, and so go listen to him. So I want to I wanna say that as well. Well, let me pray. Let me pray for us. God, as we come to your word now, uh, we ask that um, that you would, as Joshua preached uh, a couple weeks ago, read us, and that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would hold us in your love, that you would conform us to the image of your Son. And that you would reveal yourself in such a way that we know that there is no God like you. And no one to worship but you. And nothing to worship but you. We pray these things. Amen. Well, one thing that you should know is that if that's your car going on, uh, I sent some people to take a bunch of stuff. No, I'm just kidding. So one thing that you should know about me is, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't, is that I'm a music lover. My love for music um, developed very early on. And in middle school and high school, I started cutting my teeth on the folk songs of the 60s and the classic rock of the late 60s and early 70s. No, I'm not that old, but it pays to go back and listen to things from before uh, your birth. One of the musicians that I listened to often then uh, was Bob Dylan. And a song of Dylan's has been rumbling around in my head for the past several weeks. Uh, it's the song with God on our side. Dylan opens the song like this. My name is nothing, my age it means less. The country I come from, it's called the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there the laws to abide, and that the land that I live in has God on its side. The reason that that 
song has been rumbling around in my head is because on January 6th, there was an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And many, many who were part of that insurrection believed that they had God on their side. Many others who were not at the insurrection but subsequently have justified the acts because they believed that God was on the side of the insurrectionists. There at the insurrection sprinkled throughout the mob, we saw uh, Christian symbols. I don't know how many there were or how prevalent there were, but there were enough to take note of. There was uh, people holding Bibles. There was a man with a cross. I saw two signs that said Jesus saves. There were, by first-hand accounts, people prophesying that God was, uh, God was going to overturn the election and keep Trump in office for his purposes. And there was, worst of all, so-called Christian music blaring on the loudspeakers. I say so-called because most of that is not Christian. But I digress. It was clear that the people there believed that they had God on their side. The reason why I think that this is important, there are lots of sins that are happening in our society. But the reason why I think that this is important to talk about in particular is because I am not called first and foremost or to call out the sins of Babel. But I am told to talk about the sins of the New Jerusalem. And that these are sins that were fostered and promoted and have been uh, promoted and at least looked over in much of the church. And so, I want to look at happened at the insurrection and some of those sins, uh, and I could, I, could, I could look at it through a number of angles, and especially there, there's tons of political commentary out there, and if you want to go read it, go read it, you should go read it. There's lots out there, lots to get your ha uh, hands on. And there are a lot of sins that I could address, or a lot of things that I could address, but I want to look at the Ten Commandments, and particularly the first three. See, I could talk about uh, the prohibition against lying and talk about the great lie that incited it. I could talk about um, the command to honor one's father and mother and how that expands the honoring of all authorities and how that was violated. But the first three commands in the scriptures, in the Ten Commandments, set the culture for who we are supposed to be as the people of God. And so it's those that I want to look at. And I want to take them in reverse order. So the first, or the third command, Exodus 20, verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, when I was a kid growing up, I thought that this was primarily about cussing. And I thought that it was mainly a prohibition against saying the Anglo-Saxon or Germanic version of the, the, the title we call the deity, God. But what I've grown up to realize is that this commandment is much broader and deeper than that. That the commandment actually is about God's name, which is associated with his mission and character. And it's any lifting up of God's name in vanity. 
any lifting up of God's name or taking on God's name for purposes that are not in line, explicitly in line with his character and his mission or in ways that could tarnish or distort his character and his mission. When, when the rioters reached the, um, when they reached the chamber floor and they went to uh, behind the desk, they held a Christian flag and then they said, Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. Amen. Let's say a prayer in the sacred space. And here's the prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for gracing us with this opportunity to stand up for our God-given inalienable rights. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving the inspiration needed to these police officers to allow us in this building, to allow us to send a message to all the tyrants, the communists, the globalists, that this is our nation, not theirs, that we will not allow the American way of life to go down. Thank you, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent creator God for filling this chamber with your white light of love, your white light of harmony. Thank you for filling this with patriots who love you and that love Christ. Thank you for allowing the US, the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. This is not the first time in American history that people have invoked God's name for their own political causes and purposes. In a gross example is on November 25th in Stone Mountain, Georgia, when men dressed in white sheets built an altar, set a Bible on it, and an American flag and burned a cross in order to resurrect the Ku Klux Klan. Now that's one gross example of how God's name and Christianity has been invoked to promote one's own political and social agenda. But the truth of the matter is, is that this has been happening in uh, much more pervasive and subtle ways in our history for a long time. You see, what these uh, folks were, um, what they were tapping into was a narrative and an idea that I grew up with. And it's simply this, that the U.S. and her democracy play a special role in God's redemptive mission. It, it, that is that, that I, was, I grew up and was taught to think in the churches that I attended and the Christian school that I attended, that the American way of life and her de democratic institutions uh, were God's unique conduit for promoting and spreading his kingdom. And that was never challenged when I grew up. And because of that, I believe that protecting and promoting America and her democracy was akin to supporting, protecting, and promoting the kingdom of God. And I know that my experience was not unique. I know that it was not unique. What happened on January 6th tells me that it was not unique. It, this has been going on since, at least since um, 
John Withrop's 1630 sermon uh, to the New England colonists um, said that we have, shall be a city set on a hill. Now that sermon has been utilized or perhaps misutilized to promote this idea that America has a unique calling in God's redemptive purposes. It was also seen when the Union Army marched into Southern territory and sang the battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the coming of uh, the glory of the coming of the Lord. It was seen as recent as um, the recent um, RNC uh, convention when former Vice President Mike Pence uh, got up and in his speech he conflated um, a Christian understanding of faith and freedom with American understanding and values of faith and freedom by alluding to and utilizing uh, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 11, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, let us run the race marked out before us and let us fix our eyes on, and those of us who know the scriptural text know that it's Jesus. But Pence said, let us fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Let us fix our eyes not on the Old Testament patriarchs and those who were uh, championed the faith, but on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire us. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom and never forget that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that means that freedom always wins. What we have here is a conflation between Christian freedom the freedom that Paul promotes, which is a freedom of servitude and freedom of sin, and Western, modern, enlightenment, individualistic notions of autonomous freedom. So this is a collapsing of these two, and to say where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and that means freedom always wins, is to evoke God on the side of democratic ideals of American values and ideals and institutions. It is, in other words, to take the Lord's name in vain. Now, it happens all the time. I'm not just trying to pick on Mike Pence. I mean, I grew up in a school where I didn't know what what was, I thought My Country Kiss of Thee was a hymn. And I'm still not sure. I read the lyrics this week. And as I was reading the lyrics, I mean, you know, you go from singing about this country in America to singing about God in the third verse to going back. And we sang it right in the midst of our hymns. And how am I supposed to know? But it's this conflation that happens. It happens everywhere. It, 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 it's, it's as subtle as when, and you say, well, it's not us. But you see, it is us. It's as subtle as having American flags in sanctuaries, which happens often. Why is there an American flag in the sanctuary? The sanctuary that we worship in once a year. The sanctuary of one of the biggest, most prestigious, most historic churches in our denomination. But it's it's going to visit another church on the 4th of July and 
and, and hearing a sermon, another church in this denomination, where, uh, where we're taught David, the great patriarch, and how we can be a great patriarch like David, or not the great patriot, and how we can be a great patriot like David. But it's it's super subtle. It's it's as subtle as it's as subtle as the phrase. It can be as subtle as the phrase. The way that we use the phrase "God bless America." Now let me be very clear. We are the people of the Abrahamic covenant, and that means that we are called to be a blessing to the nations. And that God has blessed us so that we can put his blessing on all of the nations. And so, yes, we should call on God to bless America. But here's the question. Do we say, when we say God bless America, do we equally say with the same weight and in the same way, God bless Saudi Arabia? Do we say God bless South Korea? Are we willing to say God bless France and Iraq because we are called to do that in the same way. And when we don't, we are showing that God has some kind of redemptive, special elect purposes for the U.S. And he does not. He does not. There is one nation that he had that with. That is Israel. We are not Israel. U.S. is not Israel. It, it is as subtle. It is as subtle as in teaching the Great Commission as if it's centralized in America, that we go out from America into all the earth. Now, let me tell you, God has called his people to go out to all the earth. And so, yes, we, even Christians who are in America, should be sending people to the utmost, uttermost parts of the earth. And we, by the way, are part of those uttermost parts of the earth. We're about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. But yes, we should be sending people all across the globe. Absolutely. But the problem is, is that when this narrative isn't challenged, it gets married with this narrative. And then what happens is when we send people, we think that what we're sending them with is not simply the gospel of Jesus Christ, but what we have come to believe is the primary conduit of that gospel, democratic Western American ideals. And it's a taking of the Lord's name in vain. And even, even the, the great Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bobbing in 1911, he, he called on this, he, he, he made this huge broadcast and gave this speech to all these people in the Netherlands. And part of his whole point was in this speech, he was trying to disentangle missions from colonial expansion because he knew how big of a problem it was then a problem today and here's the greatest problem with it Paul drawing the apostle Paul drawing on the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel says this in Romans chapter 2 God's name God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you that is when we violate the third commandment, when we take God's name in vain, when we promote causes that are contrary to the gospel or not expressly related to the gospel, as if God is on our side, we give unbelievers cause to blaspheme. It distorts our mission. Second commandment, 
Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The second commandment, I just want to set us all straight, is not the same as the first commandment, which is against idolatry. The first commandment is have no other God before me. We'll get to that one. This commandment is not about worshiping other gods. This commandment is about making images of the one true God and distorting his character. You see, the context of this is that when Moses was up on the mountain, Aaron takes the people's gold and he melts it and he makes a golden calf. And when he made a golden calf, he said, behold, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They didn't want another God. They wanted a Yahweh they could see. And so Aaron made them a Yahweh they could see, and they bowed down to it. And this commandment is directly addressing that. What this commandment is about is any representation of God that does not align with God's character. It's for, And the problem is it's for us to image God rather than God revealing his own image in his word and ultimately in the word it's creating a false image of the true god now one of the one of the one of the flags that was there at the at the insurrection said this make america godly again now let me say a, a sentiment that i that i've heard here in our community now let me say this, it is not wrong to pray for God to make America godly. It is not wrong. But when we say make America godly again, we raise the question, when did America reflect the character of God in her history? Because that's what it means to be godly. Was it should we go back? Was it the mass incarceration of the 90s and 2000s? Or, or was it the sexual revolution of the 60s through the 80s that normalized divorce and abortion and pornography and playboy culture? You said, no, we need to go back farther than that. Okay. Are you talking about the Jim Crow era of the 40s and 50s? Or maybe should we go back to, you know, reconstruction and redemption? The 1880s through the 1940s, where there were 6,500 recorded lynchings. Recorded. That's one every three days. When should we go back? Should we go back before that to race-based chattel slavery? At what point in American history did she reflect the character of God? See, the problem when we say make America godly again, the only way that we can say that is if we do one of two things. We either deny this history or what is more likely the case, we try to adopt and adapt our image of God 
to our picture of the American story and America's history. But when we do that, we create a distorted image of God. It's either the God of racialized hierarchy, it's the God who privileges one nation over all the rest, it's the God maybe who saves through violent assertions of military might, or it's the God of individual autonomy and expressive individualism. Maybe it's the God of anti-authority and anti-authoritarianism, or the God of flat egalitarianism. Is that really the God of the Bible? That there are no authorities, or that there's racial hierarchy. Is that, is that the world that God created? Is that his character? Brothers and sisters, our hope is not to return. Even though there are many great things to conserve about the past, our hope is not in returning or conserving some previous age. And brothers and sisters, our hope is not in moving forward to progress. While there is a lot of work to be done, our hope is not and moving forward to progress because a lot of progress looks like a pit of destruction. Our hope is to turn to a person who is Lord of time and judges history and invades history to save his people from their sin. Which brings me to the first commandment. Exodus 20 verse three. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God's commandment is against having any other gods before him. To make an idol is to look to any created thing or idea or person or place or institution to be and do for us what only God can be and do for us. It's when we look to something other than God for our ultimate safety, for security, our identity, purpose, meaning. It's when we say, that thing will save me. It's when in our heart of hearts we say, life would just be good if that happened, or life would be a nightmare and I don't know how I would go on if that was taken away. And the reality is, is that many on January 6th, Nancy Pelosi called the Capitol the sacred temple of our democracy. When she did that, I think she was just being honest about what many people think, that that is the sacred temple. And it is easy to do. Now, I've spoken with many people, many of you over the last few years, and you're anxious, and I understand you're anxious uh, about where things are headed in our country, in this country, the country to which we've been called. You're anxious, uh, you're anxious about losing uh, religious rights. I understand. But you know, when, 
when I talk to Christians of other countries, and I've had the opportunity to do that, countries where they haven't found the government to be so supportive of their free exercise of religion, I don't hear the same anxiety in their voice. And I had to ask myself the question, why? Why, when they have never had or don't have government protection and promotion of their ability to worship and serve God, why are they less anxious? And the conclusion that I have to come to is because they've never looked to the government to be that which facilitates their worship of the triune God or which promotes their ability to further his mission in his kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. Democracy is a good thing. I love democracy. I think it's the best form of government that we have on this earth right now. I am so happy. are hardly ever bad things. What makes something attractive as an idol is that it's a good thing that we actually make an ultimate thing. But here's the problem. When we make good things into ultimate things, we will justify anything to support it. Democracy can become an idol. Did you see the inauguration? I think the most beautiful part of the inauguration highlight for me was Amanda Gorman's poem. I, did, I do have to quibble with one part of the poem, though. She said, while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith, we trust. But if we trust in that truth, or, and if that's where we put our faith, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Democracy is a great thing. Don't make it an ultimate thing. Because then you're liable to justify anything, including mischaracterizing your opponents and even violence in its extreme forms. So saying that, let me say that there is not just a quote-unquote conservative, what we call conservative in this country version of this, but there is also a quote-unquote progressive version of this. See, when we take God's name to say, uh, I am going to promote my cause, and my cause and the best cause is to get this person out of office and to put this one in it, then we're doing the same thing. It's just the other way. Many of you, many of you are uh, moved by, moved by the injustice in the world. And that is a good thing. Many of you are taken up with the fact that there is so much injustice in our country and you want to do something about it. And that is a good thing. Some of you are very moved by the racial injustices of this country in its history and in their present form. And that's a beautiful thing. 
But don't let anti-racism, a good thing, become an ultimate thing. Because then what will happen is that it will lead you to, to promote and defend the mischaracterization of your opponents, their slander, and to even use violence. Uh, I mean, I have a friend who his tenure process was completely corrupted, completely, and a university on the other side of the country. Lies were told, documents were backdated and lost and thrown away, all because, or all in the name of anti-racism, because because he wasn't, uh, he wasn't publishing actively enough on that subject. And it's wrong. Now here's the question. Why would we abandon our idols? Why would we seek to not worship any distorted or create any distorted image of God, why would we not take on the Lord's name for our own personal or political causes? Why? Well, here's one reason. Amanda Gorman, remember, she said that democracy can be periodically delayed, but it can never be permanently defeated. But I'm not sure that that's true. We don't have any promise that democracy, how long it will last. But we do know this. In the book of Daniel, chapter 2 and chapter 7, we see kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling. And at the end of it, after all these kingdoms rise and all of them fall, one kingdom remains. It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is the only one that will last. And it doesn't look quite like a democracy. And it's here. So repent, brothers and sisters, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repent because this is good news. Remember the first commandment, the greatest commandment, which Ernst Kaseman called not only a demand, but also a promise. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. Shall have no other gods before me. This is the beauty of it. That we have been delivered and we have been rescued so that one day, someday, we will never have any other gods. And this God will be all in all. We will never be tempted to take another image or to make an image of him or distort him. And we will never be tempted to take his name in vain. One last comment. This is for those of you who are tempted, like me, to look at what happened on January 6th and either say, oh, those extremists, I'm so thankful I'm not like them, or to say, I told you so, I knew this would happen. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the story story is, quote, to some of those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, you know, people like me. 
And the story goes like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a religious leader, a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector who was in league with Rome, the enemy. And the Pharisee, he prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other, other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax collector, he just said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And one of the ones, one of those men went home justified. Right in God's sight. And it wasn't the tax collector. It wasn't the Pharisee. Now, what if we just change one word? God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like those insurrectionists. But one goes unjustified. Insurrectionist. In fact, Jesus died as an insurrectionist in the place of insurrectionists. That's what crucifixion was. It was the capital punishment for insurrectionists. And on that day, he died between two insurrectionists. And one of the insurrectionists, he looked at him that day and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at that insurrectionist that day and he said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Because this is what his kingdom is about. It's grace. It's a gift given without regard to worth. It's a God who justifies the ungodly. It's a God who justifies those who say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, because I got nothing to bring. That's what this good news is about. And so when we come here, we don't come here to be comforted by our own goodness, to be, but to be comforted by the goodness of another on our behalf. When we come here, we don't come here to be confirmed in our own brightness but to be comforted and confirmed in the righteousness of another, even Jesus Christ, on our behalf. So that God looks at you and me, insurrectionists that we all are. I have given God the double finger and walked out on him. And yet he looks at me and he says, Today, be with me because I died as an insurrectionist for insurrectionists like you Kyle I died for you that's the only way and it's the only way out so let's take time now to run to Jesus and bleed his mercy